You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Happy Monday and welcome back to Monday Science. I hope you've had a great start to the week. Before we go on to today's episode, a reminder that Monday Science is on social media. So we're on Instagram at Monday Science. We are also on Facebook, Monday Science. (laughs) And we're also on Twitter, Monday Science underscore. Um, And you can submit your questions via our social media, preferably Instagram, as well as uh, via email. That's mondayscience2020 at gmail.com or on our website. And if you wish to send your question as a voice note, you can also do that on our website as well. That's mondayscience.wixsite.com forward slash podcast. Another bit of good news is that we now have um, episode summaries. These are a summary, a written summary of um, the podcast that we've recorded so far with some additional information for you to take a look at. Uh, This is available on our website. Okay, on to today's episode. I'm going to be discussing a recent discovery. Some researchers that are mainly based in America have developed a lab-made virus that mimics the COVID-19 virus. And I realised we've all been talking about viruses. You know, we know that the pandemic is caused, I'm sorry, the current pandemic, uh, COVID-19 is caused by a virus. But I realise, do we really know what a virus is? It might sound really silly to say, but we've been talking about viruses, but I don't think we actually know what they are. Or we, or people don't tend to discuss, everybody's assumed everybody knows what a virus is. Before I go into the main information about the the discovery, let's talk about viruses. Viruses are non-cellular entities that consist of a genetic core and that genetic core is surrounded by a protein coat. And viruses rely on the cells of other organisms to survive and reproduce. And this is because they can't capture or store energy themselves. In other words, they can't function outside of a host organisms, which is why they're often regarded as being non-living. At the core of a virus particle is something called a genome. So this can be a long molecule made up of DNA. So DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid or RNA, which is ribonucleic acid. And both of these contain the genetic instructions for producing the virus. So the differences between DNA and RNA. DNA replicates and stores genetic information. It's the blueprint for all genetic information obtained within an organism. RNA uh, converts the genetic information contained within DNA to a format used to build proteins and then moves it to a ribosomal protein factory. All of this, so this is, so remember the virus, at the core of the virus is the genome, so that's our genetic instruction for the virus. And this is then wrapped up in a coat made of protein molecules called a capsid. Uh, which then protects the genetic material. Just relating it back to COVID, so the family of the family of coronaviruses are a group of related RNA viruses. As we know, SARS-CoV-2 is the strain of the corona of the coronaviruses that causes COVID-19. In episode two of Monday Science, in my conversation with Dr. Saskia Popescu, we discussed the origins of SARS-CoV-2, and she confirmed that at the time um, there was a definite zoonotic element to SARS-CoV-2 and we had a whole discussion about the kind of like the journey of um, these sort of viruses. So SARS-CoV-1, which was the cause of the SARS uh, outbreak many years ago. So as we know, COVID-19 is airborne, it's highly contagious, you know, potentially dangerous. And all of that makes it quite a difficult virus to study. It can only actually be studied under um, high level biosafety laboratory conditions. 
what is biosafety? A biosafety level can be used to identify the protective measures that are needed in a laboratory setting to protect workers, the environment and the public. I had to learn about this fairly recently. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this, but when I, so my research until a few years ago was very much focused on um, non-communicable diseases. So, you know, drug development, looking to help um, particularly older patients or those at the extremes of age and trying to make sure that these products that were developed would be, you know, what we call age appropriate and suitable for the intended end user. So if it's for children, making sure that it's um, palatable and things like that. So that's what I was doing. And I, I didn't get into the infection world until, as I said, a few years ago when research direction changed towards uh, malaria and antimicrobial resistance. And that's where I learned all about biosafety. I didn't have to think about, I had to think about hygiene. And yes, I did have to think about safety, but in a different way. I never had to think about biosafety. And so biosafety is a really, really um, big and important uh, topic, especially when dealing with biological materials and, and microorganisms. Biosafety level is used to identify, you know, the protective measures of mention, and the levels can be identified in the something called the biosafety in biomedical laboratories. Um, it's like a document or practice and policy document um, that's provided by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in America. In the UK, we have the Health and Safety Executive plus a biosafety unit as well. And the Health and Safety Executive, so that's HSE uh, in the UK, so they're the national regulator for workplace health and safety. Uh, they prevent work-related death, injury and ill health. And the bios our biosafety unit in the UK provides the government, departments and commercial sector with expertise, advice and consultancy. I'm going to use both the UK and the America classification system further moving forward just to try and explain this whole biosafety world. So in both the UK and in America, the level of containment of biological agents such as microorganisms so that parasites, bacteria, viruses, fungi and, and others are in four groups. So in the UK, we refer to them as groups. Um, and also they can be kept in America, they refer to them as four biosafety levels um, as well. But I think those terms are used sort of interchangeably. Um, some people might have heard the term like cat two, cat one, category one, category two. They're roughly it's roughly all the same. So you can have the level of containment in four uh, groups or four levels. Uh, and the range is starting from the lowest level one to the highest level four. And so if we start off with biosafety level one or group one, these are um, biological agents which are unlikely to cause human disease. With a level one, um, this, these biological agents are suitable for work in a, you know, with well-characterized agents uh, which don't cause any disease to healthy humans. In general, these agents don't, you know, they could pose minimal potential hazard to laboratory personnel and the environment. And at this level, precautions are limited to anybody in the lab, washing their hands upon entering and exiting the, the lab, um, you know, obviously wiping the surfaces and things like that. So an, an example of a level one containment or group one biological agent would be something like non-pathogenic, a non-pathogenic strain of E. coli. Uh, onto biosafety level two or group two. And these tend to be biological agents that can cause human disease and may be a hazard to employees or you know, surrounding people. It's unlikely to spread to the community 
and there is usually effective prophylaxis or treatment available. So prophylaxis is preventative measures, so preventative treatment. And at this level, you know, all precautions that are used in the safety level one are followed, as well as some additional precautions as well. This can include um, those who are working the lab, they might have to have specific training on how to handle the pathogenic agent. Um, there might be some advanced training. Access to the laboratory is likely to be limited. Um, just only access to those who are actually doing, you know, the laboratory work. And then it could also include maybe some precautions for some of like the sharps, you know, so if there's any needles or scalpels being used, then they would have to be disposed of appropriately as well, perhaps with an autoclave. An example of a level two um, containment or group two biological agent could be something like, um, it could be something like H. pylori, so the, um, the bacteria that's commonly found in the stomach that can cause ulcers. Uh, so biosafety level three or group three, these are biological agents that can cause severe human disease and may be a serious hazard to employees. It may spread to the community and there's usually effective prophylaxis or treatment available. With level three, this is commonly used for research and diagnostic work involving like the various microbes which can be transmitted in the air and can cause disease. And the type of work in a, when you're working with these level three biological agents. The type of work to be done is sort of like clinical, diagnostic, maybe even teaching, research or production. So in level three, you take the proportions from level one and two, but then in addition, um, those who are using the, the laboratory space uh, would have to be provided with some sort of medical surveillance, offered immunization where possible because they need to reduce, this is to reduce the risk of any accidental or unnoticed infection then there might be specific procedures that are involved in the infectious material, you know, getting rid of the infectious material. This will probably mean that it will have to be done in a biological safety cabinet. Those who are working on these kind of, on these level three uh, biological agents must wear what we call solid front protective clothing. So gowns that tie at the back, they can't be worn outside of the laboratory and they have to be discarded or de decontaminated after use. An example of level three, you might have guessed, is something like SARS-CoV-1, so that was the virus that caused the SARS outbreak. Then there's MERS-CoV that's there, yellow fever virus, that's an example. So this is, these are examples of um, level three uh, biological agents. Also included in this is uh, one of the malaria parasites, so plas Plasmodium falciparum, bacteria that causes, so the Myobacterium bovis, that causes tuberculosis in cattle, and then the myobacterium tuberculosis, which causes tuberculosis in humans. So now until level four. So level four, so biosafety level four or group four, these uh, biological agents cause severe human disease and is a serious hazard to employees. It is also likely to spread to the community and there is no effective prophylaxis or treatment available. So again, as a reminder, prophylaxis is preventative treatment. This level four is the highest level of um, this is where the highest level of biosafety precautions is required and is appropriate for work with agents that could easily sort of be transmitted in the air within the laboratory as well and to cause um, severe to fatal disease in humans where there's no vaccine or treatments available. The level four laboratories 
they tend to be set up either as cabinet laboratories or protective suits laboratories as well. In a cabinet laboratory, all work must be done within what we call a class three biosafety uh, cabinet or laboratory or, or, or hood. And materials leaving these sort of hoods, these biosafety cabinets, they must be decontaminated, you know, by autoclaving or um, disinfectant. And generally speaking, with these in work that's conducted in these level four laboratories is used for diagnostic work um, and research on easily transmitted pathogens, which can cause fatal disease. An example of a level four containment or group four biological agent includes various strains of um, the Ebola virus, as well as Lassa virus as well. These level four facilities are not common in comparison to sort of level three, level two, level one sort of work that you could conduct. Um, only a few countries have them globally. So these level four facilities and these countries include America, UK, France, Gabon, uh, Argentina, Brazil, China, Russia, Switzerland, Sweden, South Korea, Japan, India, Italy, Taiwan and South Africa. Interestingly, a couple of proposals to build a, a level four facility that would be dedicated to the curation of potentially like biohazardous extraterrestrial materials. So when um, an, an astronaut, some astronaut <laughs> goes into space and maybe instead of when, when, if they find any sort of biological material in whatever planet <laughs> they are on, then bring that back to, to earth and, you know, for some investigations. Well, um, from what I've looked at, there currently um, there aren't any facilities that are available on Earth to examine um, potentially biohazard extra extraterrestrial materials. And so, yeah, there's some proposals ongoing to build a facility. From what I've seen, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is grouped as level three. Not level four, as I would have thought, but it seems to be level three. So just as a reminder, level three is causes severe human disease, may be a serious hazard to employees. It may spread to the community, but there's usually effective prophylaxis or treatment available. There are various levels of containment that's required for, you know, different um, certain biological agents. And with this, there are cost implications. Uh, you know, there's access to facilities and, um, you know, what can sometimes happen? So just from my own personal experience, when I started working in malaria research, I naively was like, yes, I want to have my own, I want to have access to my own parasites and I want to grow my mosquitoes and, and so I can do the work on site um, and, and work quickly. And it was very naive. I, I was, <laughs> I thought, yeah, set it up quickly, who needs? But then the realities of everything kicked in. So as I mentioned before, there's the cost implications. There's also the, the space to set up a laboratory to conduct uh, work on a level three biological agent, for example, you know, you need to get funding, it's going to cost a lot of money. And, you know, there's always an issue with access to space in various different um, organisations and institutes. So what the advice is to then work with a biological agent that's similar to your desired agent, but can be handled at a lower containment or category level. So, for example, my aim was to work with Plasmodium falciparum. The, um, one of the parasites that causes uh, malaria, that's a level three biological agent. I don't have access to a level three, or at the time I didn't have access to a level three um, laboratory. So then the advice is, well, why don't I work on another parasite? For example, Lishomania tropica, 
which has a containment level of level is level two. Yeah, okay. So it's like, oh, okay. So therefore that means we've got level two facilities, access to that, and there's space for that. So actually I'll be able to do some work. Therefore I'll be able to do some work on a parasite that's not necessarily my main parasite of interest, but actually some of the fundamental work and understanding that I'd want to maybe do on a on the malaria parasite, I could actually do on the leishmania parasite. And and people do this often. So I spoke earlier about tuberculosis. Um, so for example, uh, the, the, the bacteria that causes tuberculosis in humans is a level three, but, so that's myobacterium tuberculosis. Um, but then you could work on myobacterium bovis, but the BCG strain, which is level two. Bringing us back to um, COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, which causes it's a containment level or biosafety level three. With each level that you go up, there's more cost required to maintain the laboratory. There's more things that's required in terms of uh, consumables, that's required protective, personal protective um, equipment. And so with SARS-CoV-2 being safety level three, this does limit um, how you can work on it. So therefore, if you could work on something similar to SARS-CoV-2, that had a lower um, biosafety level or, or hazard group, so such as maybe being level two, then it would make it easier to work with and more people could work on it. The reality is, is that you know, further scientific study um, and investigation is required to develop effective vaccines. We know that there's a lot of research going on at the moment with vaccine therapy, treatment, against, um, against SARS-CoV-2. The more work that's put into these areas, could you know potentially save more lives those who are handling uh the virus so SARS-CoV-2 of course they're going to be wearing all the ne necessary protective equipment for level three to wear full body biohazard suits with pressurized respirators they're working inside inside level three laboratories which have multiple containment levels and specialized ventilation systems and so these researchers at Washington University School of Medicine they've created a safer hybrid virus in their lab so there's something called pseudotype virus, or they can also be known as pseudoviruses, pseudoparticles, pseudotype viral particles. And these were discovered in the early 1900s. And they're viral particles that express a modified form of something called the viral spike protein on the virus surface. And with these pseudotype viral particles, um, they've been developed for many different viruses. So they were actually developed for SARS-CoV, for MERS, for Ebola, and also the highly pathogenic influenza A virus. So aside from being safer in terms of handling in comparison to the original virus, the pseudotype viruses have quite a few advantages in that they can be quite a useful way to get genetic material into cells for like for a therapeutic purpose. And this can actually induce um, antigen production so they can actually act as a, vi as a vaccine. The researchers at Washington University School of Medicine, they genetically modified a mild virus by swapping one of the genes for one of the SARS-CoV-2. And the resultant hybrid virus is able to infect cells and, rec and is recognized by antibodies in a similar way to SARS-CoV-2, but can be handled under um, level two safety conditions. This virus is, is safer, so it makes it, therefore makes it possible and easier for scientists who don't have access to high-level biosafety facilities to join the efforts to find treatment and vaccines for COVID-19. And so far, these researchers have distributed the virus to 
other researchers in countries such as Argentina. So as I mentioned before, they're based in the original um, researchers of this discovery are based in America. And I believe um, somebody else on the team might be based in Switzerland. They've been able to distribute the virus, their hybrid, safer hybrid virus uh, to Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Canada, and other states um, in America. And they have pending requests from people in the UK and in Germany. And the interesting thing is that as the hybrid virus looks like SARS-CoV-2 to the immune system, but doesn't cause the severe disease, they are looking to see if this virus could, could be a potential vaccine candidate. And they're looking at conducting further animal studies. With this safer hybrid SARS-CoV-2 mimicked virus, yes, it means that more people globally will have access and, and can conduct some more experiments. My issue is we can't forget uh, that we've had quite a lot of retractions on work and research conducted on COVID-19 research. Um, and, you know, right now we're up to over 30, you know, we're up to 30 retractions of um, work on COVID-19. This is very, very unusual to have so many retractions on one topic. And I guess, maybe I'm being a bit cynical, but I guess my issue is, are we there yet? Or are they, are the researchers there yet to be distributing um, this virus? Have they done full characterization? Has there been enough time to make sure that it's, you know, similar or it's effective? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I think reading up about retractions has probably made me a bit too cynical about COVID related research, but I, I'm not discrediting the work. The, the work has been published in a, a good journal, but also what it actually, one of the things I did look at was the length of time it's been taken to publish. They published the work, I believe in, the paper was received in on the 17th of May, 2020. It was revised on the 18th of June and then accepted by the 24th of, of June and made available online uh, uh, shortly after that. Because one of the big criticisms, one of the reasons why, you know, people think there's been so many retractions on COVID-19 related work has been due to the peer review process, hasn't been robust, everything's happened very quickly. Because peer review methods haven't been as robust as they usually have been, then, you know, research that shouldn't have been pu published have sli has slipped through the net. I guess with, with, with this discovery, I, I do think it's really good. So any effort, that is made any discovery that will help increase the amount of, uh, of, of scientists, of people who can join um, the, the fight against COVID-19 um, by way of discovery of treatment and, and development of vaccines, any efforts and discoveries in that area, I am in full support of. I guess my concern is what happens if in a year they find out something was wrong with their initial method and what happens if it's something's wrong <laughs> and then everybody's been working on it for a year and then you know all those efforts have been have gone to waste but as I said before looking at it it looks like a really you know it's a very good uh, discovery um, with a lot of potential impact I guess my concerns would just be is it too soon for the hybrid virus to be disseminated globally for other people to work on it has enough characterization been conducted on this initial um, hybrid virus that's been developed. So let me know what you think. Perhaps I'm being too cynical. Perhaps I'm, I'm too scared <laughs> from all the, the retraction horror stories. So let me know what you think. Drop an email, mondayscience2020 at gmail.com. 
or let us know on on, on Instagram um, and Twitter at Monday Science at Monday Science underscore. Uh, perhaps I'm I should be a bit more excited about discovery. I am excited about the discovery, but I'm just also a little bit cautious. Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, Details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, So catch up with you next week. Bye.